0: Welcome to this special Indigenous Voices edition of the Salt and Light Hour, I'm Deacon Pedro. Last month we started Indigenous Voices, a little mini-series within the Salt and Light Hour to help us get to know Indigenous people learn from their stories and legends, and learn about their culture, languages, and spirituality. This is all part of walking together with them towards true healing and reconciliation, for we are all in need of both. Last time we heard from Harvey McHugh, an accomplished educator from the Georgina Island First Nation in Ontario, and we also met Cassidy Karen, the president of the Métis National Council. You can listen to those conversations on our website, slmedia.org slash podcast. Today, we will speak first with Julia Kozak, an artist and dancer from the Nisqa Nation in British Columbia. And later on, we'll speak with Alan Jameson, an elder with the Cayuga Nation in Ontario. Welcome to our second episode of this Salton Light Hour special series, Indigenous Voices. Julia Kozak was born and raised in Vancouver and in the lower mainland of British Columbia. She is a visual artist and a powwow dancer. We spoke about growing up as an Indigenous woman, her Catholic faith, and about storytelling. We also spoke about the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls movement and about the meaning of true reconciliation.
1: My name is Julia Kozak and I am Indigenous First Nations. I'm a member of the Niska Nation, uh, which is way out on the northwest coast of BC, pretty close to Prince Rupert. And um, so it's settled right in the Nass Valley is uh, the exact location. And uh, yeah, I'm a devoted Catholic. I've been involved with uh, Catholic ministry for for several, several years now. Um, both of my husband, Adam, and I have been involved with, with the Catholic church for, for many years and uh, in different aspects of ministry, uh, a lot of sacramental preparation, youth ministry work, and uh, yeah, cata- catechesis. And yeah, it's been wonderful.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're also a, a dancer and an artist, and I, and I want to talk about that. But uh, first, you, you weren't always Catholic. You were born, correct me if I'm wrong, you were born in Vancouver or you grew up in Vancouver. What was it like growing up as a young Indigenous woman in Vancouver?
1: It was interesting. So the, the first uh, part of when I was growing up, uh, we, didn't, we weren't really close to an Indigenous community. Um, we had maybe a couple of Indigenous friends, but we weren't, we weren't very close to an Indigenous community. Um, when we moved to more into the lower mainland uh, into Abbotsford we did connect with the indigenous community there. There's the Stalo nation that we were close to. Right. And uh, so that was really rewarding to be able to learn more about, especially the, the West Coast indigenous culture. And uh, oftentimes I would go over to my friends' houses there and uh, their parents actually, it's interesting they they wouldn't necessarily tell me about different, traditions and history and stories but they would show me Mm -hmm. so they would they would show me carvings or they would tell us stories or they would share their food with us and it would be traditional bannock and chili and rice and and things like that so i I learned just through example Mm -hmm. um and listening to the music that they would play and and seeing different things that they were involved in the community so Um, it was beautiful
0: the sense the sense i get from um indigenous people i know not just here in Canada, but even in the States and other places, is that it's very, the culture is very family oriented. So so was there, do you come from a big family when you moved to Abbotsford? Is that because you were moving closer to family, lots of aunties and cousins, or what was that like?
1: Oh, well, I actually have a lot of uh, family across the country. Uh, Yeah, we actually moved closer to the lower mainland. Um, We had some friends who had moved into the lower mainland mm. and um for my my dad's work uh, my parents worked in ministry as well for basically their entire adult lives okay and uh, yeah they were missionaries and uh so they did a lot of ministry work out out west and okay yeah so we moved a bit closer when they moved the head office to the lower mainland
0: i understand okay so you because you're a catholic convert but you grew up as a christian
1: Yes. Yeah. I grew up with a evangelical background.
0: Okay. So yeah. was it your experience then growing up that there was a healthy relationship between the church and the indigenous community?
1: There was. Yes. Uh, I didn't feel any friction between the Christian um, churches or like the churches that we went to. And uh, the indigenous community. A lot of the people from the indigenous communities that we knew went to church as well. Um, mm-hmm. Not necessarily the same church. There's a lot of churches in the town. That yes, <laughs> that I, grew I actually, up in, yeah, so. I do
0: know Abbotsford, and there are a <laughs> lot of churches. That's true.
1: Yeah. So uh, I didn't. I didn't feel that there was any friction um, mm-hmm. at all. Do you I didn't know hear anything?
0: Like do you know how many generations back your family was Christian? More or wow. less, maybe.
1: Several. i I couldn't put a number on it, but uh, yeah. you know yeah, my my parents and my grandparents uh, and uh, yes, I believe even my great grandparents right were were Christian to any one extent or another.
0: And being in that part of a country, would any of your relatives have had residential school experiences?
1: It's very like likely that they did. Um, I don't have a story specifically. But knowing, especially up in the, the Prince Rupert area, mm-hmm. um, yeah, up in the Nass Valley, uh, they would have been taken to residential schools. There were a couple of them that were nearby, and um, even they probably would have been taken as far as Kamloops.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for people that are, are maybe are listening who are not familiar, so Prince Rupert, we always think it might be northern BC, but it's actually not. It's about halfway up British Columbia on the on the coast, right? um yes um um, you ended up I mean you're an artist now were you always an artist where where when did that start happening for you and the dancing as well I mean I include that as art as well
1: oh sure yeah I've I've always been a dancer (laughs) I've always been an artist um ever since I was even a toddler coloring drawing painting um I started actually dancing. My parents enrolled me in um, ballet class when I was two years old. Wow. So I've been a dancer basically since I could walk and uh, yeah, it was more, well, I, I don't want to say recently, but uh, I started going to powwows and uh, exploring more about my indigenous heritage and going deeper in that um, in particular, the Northwest coast traditions mm-hmm. and yeah, uh, yeah, if quite a, well, not quite a few years ago, but um, maybe 10 years ago or so, getting more involved. And uh, so that really has led me to exploring the symbolism between um, the art and the stories and the mythology, uh, particular in particular, the Northwest Coast art mm-hmm. and uh, seeing how the lines form um, trying to tell stories with the art and the paintings that I that I do, um, what colors to use because everything holds symbolism yeah, and imagine. meaning.
0: Yeah, Th- was there uh, something?
1: Yeah, and I've.
0: Sorry to interrupt. Was was there something that happened or, or something that changed for you ten years or so ago that made you want to go deeper I- into those traditions?
1: I think uh, getting involved with the indigenous communities around here in the in the area. Uh, spurred me on to to learning more and just realizing how I didn't have that kind of education as much Mm -hmm. uh, in school a lot of things they didn't they didn't know about so they wouldn't really teach it very much and anytime that I was able to have exposure to learning more about Indigenous culture and tradition from across Canada I would just soak it in and Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, just realized how much I didn't know about even my own culture and my own Northwest culture and wanting to delve in deeper to that. And that even led me to, uh, yeah, powwow dancing. And when I started to get even more into powwow dancing, uh, I built my own regalia. So I I drew things out and I sketched to design my own crest and I got the fabrics and materials and I stitched everything together by hand. And so I built my button blanket and yeah. We're proudly <laughs> at, uh, at right. the powwows and especially right. out here, it stands out quite a bit. You don't have a lot of West coast dancers out here.
0: Yeah. It, um, I think people that are here and here, meaning in, in Ontario yes. are familiar with powwows is that uh, maybe some people don't know what a powwow is. So maybe you can tell us what a powwow is. And also I'm curious, is it as, as, as uh, present powwows in the West coast traditions? Yeah. Uh,
1: so okay, so a powwow is a, a gathering of of people of of nations. They come together to share song and stories, and to dance and to feast together, and just yeah, gather and celebrate and celebrate our our culture and our nations. And traditionally, uh, out west, we didn't have powwow. We had something called potlatch, mm-hmm. and so that was when different nations would maybe even paddle down the coast in their canoes and come together and they would feast together and gather in large longhouses houses and uh, share songs and stories okay. and, yeah. and trade together. And yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I have heard of potlatches. I didn't realize that it was a similar idea in terms of groups of people coming together to celebrate together. Um, did you, did you feel growing up, I mean, I guess because you were involved in a community that 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 was indigenous um, or that there were indigenous people as part of the community. Did you feel that you feel indigenous? Did you feel like that is something that that you were and that or was it something that wasn't even something that you were th- even thinking about as, as a young woman?
1: At first, I, I didn't. It was more when I encountered other people from that community, mm-hmm. um, where I started to have more of an awareness about um, certain differences. And and actually, it's it's interesting. Other people would point things out to me. Um, one of the librarians at our elementary school asked my mom because um, she wasn't quite sure. She said, "Oh, like you know, is is Julia indigenous?" And and my mom oh, said, wow. "Yeah, she is." And she said, "Why? Like, why did you ask?" And so the librarian had said. Um, all of the other kids were crowding up at the desk and th- thrusting their books and wanting to be first. And Julia was just standing there at the back, holding her books, waiting for everyone to be done, just quiet and right. patient. She said, usually that's you know, that quiet calm is kind of what you see. <laughs> <laughs> so that might be blood memory or you that's know, generation hand a, down.
0: <laughs> good, good quality that we all should have. <laughs> um, you're part of the NISGA nation. Um, what can you tell us about? So because you mentioned the Stalo. Nation, so those are two different nations yes. but are there similarities are there relationships uh, what can you tell us about Nisga? Uh,
1: yeah so niska is up uh as i mentioned on the north on the northwest uh, stalo mm-hmm. and salish would be uh, on the coast and the lower mainland a bit mm-hmm. further to the south and um yeah so for the Niska, we have many, many stories and, and myths and things. And, and so my people say that we've been there on that land since time immemorial. Yeah. And um, it's, it's really interesting going back to explore the history of the people and learning that we have stories that come from that region that are thousands and thousands of years old. Yeah. And it just makes you wonder, like, how long have we been here? Yeah, kind of gives you goosebumps. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's amazing. And you're you're Niska because both your parents are Niska.
1: Uh yes, my parents are Niska. Yeah. Yes. It, yeah.
0: If is it would it be passed on through the mother's line? Like, if your it mother would. was right. Yes. Okay. Yeah,
1: yeah. So my yeah, my mother, my grandmother, my great grandmother. Yeah, and, in Niska. and so many <laughs>
0: generations back.
1: Mm-hmm. Um
0: one of the things that so you're an artist, you're a dancer, but you also go and do presentations to schools and and parish groups about d- different issues, but all just some of them are just very basic. learn about our culture kind of thing. Um, what are some presentations that you do and why did you uh, how did you get into that and why do you think that that's important?
1: Uh, I got into it because I saw that there was a need for uh, Indigenous education and, and proper Indigenous education in schools, uh, so not things that can be learned from a textbook mm-hmm. or from someone who's necessarily outside of the culture, not saying that someone who's from outside of the culture can't teach these things. If they have a knowledge and understanding about it, mm-hmm. um, I'm sure that would be fine as well, And um, but just having an Indigenous voice to be able to go into schools and churches and community groups and to be able to share from an Indigenous perspective, uh, uh, what things maybe have been mistaught, right. misrepresented, um, yeah, and to, to speak true and speak from the heart, and uh, yeah, so some of the things that I, I present on, uh, it ranges from younger grades, from kindergarten, and all the way up to university,
2: and, yeah.
1: and, and further, um, so it ranges from, let's say, like elementary school and high school, I talk about Uh, traditional Indigenous games Mm -hmm. and in this in the game sections I in particular I I focus in on why it's important to be honest and truthful when you're playing to play fair Um, cheating doesn't get anyone anywhere and it's going to make people not want to play games with you Uh, the importance of the physical strength Um, what we say is that it's important for everyone in the community to be strong for the community to be strong Mm -hmm. so for having someone who's Ill or weak, it's not going to help the rest of the community. So you help to build that person up, and and you can do that by playing games and not making it just tough work. You can have fun while you're getting fit and getting in shape. Uh, I talk about artwork and the symbolism of the colors, the shapes, the um, characters, the animals that we put into them and uh, that kind of ties in as well with uh, mythology and storytelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Niska culture, we have what we call adawak, which are our traditional stories. And we actually consider these to be uh, like physical property almost. So this is like an heirloom that you can pass down from generation to generation. And there are certain adawak or stories that are only meant to be told by certain uh, families or clans. In the Niska Nation, and then there are some that all of the people of the Niska Nation can share, and uh, so we hold these very dear, and, and they're they're orally passed down. So you're not going to find them in writing very often. Um, they're they're meant to be spoken. They're meant to be acted out. and wow. So in my presentations, I do enjoy kind of putting on those characters and and emoting. What <laughs> a, what
0: an what an honor to be given a story like that, that you own, that only you can share, and then to be able to share it, I, I would think that that's such a beautiful privilege. Um, I know that with older groups, you would also go into some, some more serious issues. And, and there are lots of, lots of issues about just relationship between the Canadian government and, and, and the people um, all throughout and historically. But I know that one of the, the issues that you speak on is the missing and murdered indigenous women. Can you tell our listeners that, that might not be familiar with, with what that refers to? What, what is the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women? What, what does that refer to? And, and I mean, I think that once they understand, they'll know why it's important to talk about. Uh,
1: uh, so Missing and Murdered Ind- Indigenous Women and Girls is a, uh, an organization, a grassroots Indigenous org- organization that was started up, um, I think, a few years ago. And it was started because there was, it began to be noticed that there was a lot of indigenous women and girls who have gone missing or have been found murdered. And the families weren't getting the answers that they were looking for. And it showed that it kind of skewed towards it's, indigenous women and girls are more likely to be um, victims of abuse or assault or kidnapping or even murder than any other demographic in Canada. And so even with a lot of resources, a lot of these cases have gone cold. And so these families are still waiting and looking for these answers and seeking justice for their family members or their friends who have gone missing or who have turned up murdered. And so, yeah, so Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls uh, was this organization that was started by some of these families. And they they started to gather information and stories. And the numbers swiftly jumped from the hundreds and I believe into the thousands of stories from family members who just said, I know someone who went missing. I know someone who has been killed. And... um, so yeah, they started up this organization to raise awareness, to raise support and try to get it known and, and just say, what's going on? What's going mm-hmm. on here? What is what is this? And, and why has, I don't wanna say not, why has nothing been done about it? Because there has been things done about it. I know that yeah. people are, are seeking justice for, for things, but what more can we do to, mm-hmm. help, to help this and prevent this from, from happening? And uh, so that is one of the things that I speak on. And um, so part of my story, actually, about why I, I more recently, I guess in the past five years or so, got more involved in, in speaking out about um, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls is um, when I was eight years old, I was walking home from school one day and we lived in a safe enough neighbourhood. If we knew about stranger danger, you don't take rides from strangers you also don't take rides from your friend's parents even if they said you know your mom told me it's okay you don't get in a car with anyone else or anything and uh so yeah this one day I was walking home from school and uh a man in a blue van pulled up on the sidewalk beside me and he was clutching the steering wheel so tight I could see the white on his knuckles and he had this horror horrible look on his face like he was like panicked and like exhilarated at the same time and and so he pulled up on the sidewalk beside me and it's only by god's grace that there was a parking lot beside me so i i jumped over this small hedge into this parking lot and kind of backed away and and just thought like looked at him like what what are you doing and then when his when he, he realized he was kind of stuck on the curb he wrenched the steering wheel to the side and sped off down the road and um so one thing that i share is that some people have said to me that's really lucky that you got away that day. And and I'll say like, luck has nothing to do with it. Like God had his hand on me that day. Yeah. And so it, in particular over the past few years, as I've gotten to know more about missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and, and the organization um, it's prompted me to think to myself, why did that happen to me? Why did God pre- preserve my life that day? And, with knowing that he preserved my life and gave my life back to me as a gift that day, what am I going to do with it? And so one way that I, I can grow fruit from this and reach out to people is that I can share my own experience because I almost became one of those women, one Mm -hmm. of those girls who disappeared. Mm -hmm. And so I can share, and I can say, if, if, if people need a faith, you need a voice to speak up for it, here I am. And so if I can raise any kind of awareness for that, any kind mm. of compassion from people about it, any, any way to make them feel like, yeah, something needs to be done, then that's, that's my role.
0: <laughs> right. And hopefully after, after today, when people have heard your story, then they also can become um, shares of that, of that story, that truth as, as we raise awareness. There's a lot of talk about the residential school um, system uh, but that was just one issue there are so many others like missing and murdered indigenous uh, women and girls intergenerational trauma is another kind of catchphrase that we hear um, i kind of i wanted i want to ask you a little bit about the holy father and the catholic church because he might be coming to canada to offer an apology it's kind of very specifically about the residential schools but maybe there's more there but but before that what are your thoughts about reconciliation and, and how we need to move towards reconciliation? So I guess there's two questions. What do you, what do you think is needed for reconciliation to truly happen to, to, to achieve healing? And then how can the church or how is the church? And maybe even in the, in the figure of the Holy father, uh, how does the church need to be part of that?
1: Well, I, I did want to say first, I think, uh, being very precise in in our language here, um, one thing that I I think well it's it's very important to be able to listen to the hurts of other people um, and when they're hurt and they're wounded to be able to just sit and listen and not go against that because sometimes we just need to be silent and just listen to what what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I often will say when I encounter people who, who say, how can you be part of a church that does something like this? Um, I, I kind of as gently as I can say, this wasn't how it was supposed to be. You know, we, as a church, this was not our Lord's image. This is not what he had in mind. Um, We, as people have done sinful things and you know, like all of, all of humanity, all of people are, are, have done wrong things. Um, so it's, it's people who made sinful choices to do things. Mm -hmm. And that's what needs reconciliation. Um, the God has his church and that is beautiful and, and is perfect, but we, as people who make up the church are flawed. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So that's what we, every day we struggle with. Right. Um, but uh, so that aside, uh,
0: thank you for adding that, because I think that's important to keep that in mind as we move towards reconciliation. But yeah, tell us tell us what you think is needed for re- true reconciliation to other than that, to, for true reconciliation to happen.
1: So, yeah, starting with the, the delegation to Rome, I think, is a wonderful first step um, being welcomed to to Vatican City to be able to meet with the Holy Father um, is this one side of of this door opening and being able to sit and communicate with each other um, so that each person has a chance to speak and to feel that they are being heard and for the church to be able to, as I said, sit in, in silence and listen, first of all. And just kind of take it in and absorb, and just and just hear what has been going on, and the feelings and the emotions that have that have come up, and um, hear ideas about how to move forward.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, I think the um, Holy Father coming to Canada is kind of the other side of, of that door, walking through the walking through the door, and um, being being welcomed into Canada, and on our traditional lands to come and meet and to, to reach out that, that hand of, of compassion and say, what can we do? Like, how can we move forward from this? And, and what, is, what is it going to take to, to heal? And uh, I think if I could use this as an example, I, I think with, in speaking about indigenous issues and the, the things that have been hurtful in the past, Um, and things that we still struggle with it's almost like for so many years these hurts occurred and and caused wounds and it's like there was a bandage that was put over top of that wound but the wound was so deep that like you know just putting a bandage on isn't gonna help it and so every once in a while we might think OK, well, we'll just lift up that bandage a little bit and see what's going on and just hope it heals without looking at it. But you know, when you cover up a wound that deep, it doesn't heal on its own. In, in fact, it festers. And so I think with the Indian residential schools and, and the uncovering of these graves um, was a ripping off of a bigger part of that bandage. And I think now, especially because it came from indigenous communities who were using that ground penetrating radar, It's not going to be so easy to put that bandage back over top again and and ignore it. It's kind of like, no, we need this in the light. We need to be able to look at it as ugly as it is. We need to know what happened. And that's a piece of the puzzle about how we can move forward from this Mm -hmm, and how to move forward to reconciliation together. Uh, Sometimes when, if we hurt someone or if if we feel hurt, sometimes... That hurt doesn't go away so easily, and sometimes we, if we've hurt someone, I'll, I'll use that as an example. We might have to go up to that person and, and apologize a few times. You know that trust isn't. I I make an example sometimes when in speaking to people, I say, it's it's amazing how fragile someone's hope and trust is. You can break it so easily, and how much longer does it take to rebuild up that trust and that hope in that person? Mm-hmm. And it's like that with the nations, um, the Indigenous nations across Canada. Um, there's been a, so many trusts that have been broken, um, so many promises made that have been broken, uh, families taken apart and things like that. So there's a lot of mistrust. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of looking back at the stories, feelings of hopelessness and things like that that have that have happened. And so... Having an apology from the Holy Father, I think would be a beautiful way of, of showing, you know, no, we hear you and we are here for you and going on from there.
0: You're the first person that I've actually brought up the trust issue. And I think it's something that we, we, we kind of get it. We know it's there, but you're right. I mean, regaining trust when you've been hurt by someone is takes a long time. And I think that that would be a sign of true reconciliation when trust is regained. Um, and if an apology, as you said, multiple multiple times makes is needed, then I think it would be it's necessary to do so. And, and not that the apology would be the final moment of reconciliation. It's, it's the, the beginning of the reconciliation, right? Julia? I wish we had so much more time, and, and maybe we will have on other occasions more time to, to talk. Uh, uh, thank you for sharing the little bit you've shared with us today about about yourself, about your family, about what you do, and and your your thoughts and ideas on this topic. Um, thank you, Miigwetch.
1: Thank you for thank you for inviting me to Yaksini.
0: Speaking with Julia reminded me that there were indigenous Christians for over 200 years before Canada was even a country. It is likely that the first Christian contact that those first converts had was with the Catholic Church. Julia also very clearly explained why multiple apologies are sometimes necessary and helped me see that when trust has been broken it has to be regained and that is perhaps a good sign that we're on the road to reconciliation. I'm Deacon Pedro and you're listening to a special Indigenous voices edition of the Saltonite Hour. Listen to all our programs at SLMedia.org podcast. Alan Jameson is a faith keeper from the Wolf Clan of the Cayuga people, which is one of the six nations in southwestern Ontario. He is president of the Fort Erie Friendship Centre, whose mission is to promote Indigenous culture and ways of life. We spoke about the Cayuga people, the generational impacts of residential schools, and what Canadians need to know about Indigenous people in order to move towards true reconciliation.
3: My name is Alan Jamison, and my native name is Sagonegoiosta. I'm of the Cayuga people, and currently residing in Fort Erie, Ontario, where I'm the uh, president of the board for the uh, Fort Erie Native Friendship Center, and also I'm the uh, consulting elder for the Indigenous Diabetes Health Circle. I worked a long time with uh, a Native arts organization and have worked within the Native community in different areas, but they all involved community. Uh, Was one of the first directors of uh, a Native men's residence in Toronto uh, which is still functioning and, you know, which really was the first one of its kind to open across Canada. So, you know, I try and try and assist the community wherever I can. And, you know, uh, all the issues are very close to my heart. Um, I did have uh, my grandmother attend residential school. Uh, my brothers did, and so I know the uh the impacts of it uh we call them generational impacts uh because uh my grandmother was uh, not a loving person because she grew up without any love, and you know, so that got passed on to her children, and then her children you know to the grandchildren so you know it's a it's a long time to uh to realize you know what what took place and you know and to start uh getting our communities back together and
0: yeah
3: and Um, healing and you know it's uh, it's a lot of work
0: it, it is and you are one of those people that i think have been able to Maybe not necessarily come to terms, but at least bring help bring the circle around and 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 help your community heal. And I and I'm curious, Alan, to know a little bit about what it was like for you growing up, because I know you didn't. I mean, you didn't start as a community activist helping the community. So, was did you grow up here in Ontario? Were you born in, in Ontario?
3: Yeah, I I grew up uh, with my grandmother uh, and extended family. And that was uh, in the Brantford, Ontario area. And actually was uh, was baptized and was uh, uh, part of the Catholic Church in my very early years. So, you know, I attended the uh, uh, Catholic public schools and, you know, it wasn't until maybe about I was about nine or ten uh, that I started realizing there were there were different uh, different things going on in the world, and that was because my grandmother was involved with uh, the rights of our people, and by that I mean uh, fishing, uh, hunting, land claims. And so she would always have leadership uh, meeting at her house uh, where she had uh, several documents. uh, And she would assist people that got arrested, you know, for fishing or hunting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, bring out copies of the treaties and go to court with them and, you know, argue the points that we have a right to hunt. We have a right to fish. Uh, that we have a right to survive, so you know it was growing up in that uh, in that atmosphere that led me to, to realize there was uh you know there was more to more to uh more to the world,
0: yeah, than,
3: you know than just what I had been exposed to
0: I can see that I can see that uh, your grandmother would have been a huge influence influence on you did she ever talk about her residential school experience
3: yes yes she did and and you know she i remember her mentioning that uh she said when she was leaving uh the teachers emphasized to um to be forgiving Mm -hmm. and You know, she's she kind of wondered, uh, why you know, when she was leaving, um, they kept uh uh, mentioning that or or Mm -hmm. emphasizing that, and then you know, much later in life, when she you know understood the atrocities that were done to her, she said, Now I realize you know why they wanted to push to be forgiving. Uh, because they wanted us to forgive them for what they did and you know so it was uh she was bitter you know she was very bitter
0: yeah you mentioned that you were baptized uh was your grandmother catholic or or of of a catholic background before she went to the school
3: no 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 she wasn't uh that was i think i was baptized because of the influence of one of my aunts OK. Yeah. So my dad was away working uh, as a machinist in different cities across North America. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was uh, spend a lot of time with uh, my aunts and uncles, ex- extended family. And it was through one of their influences that that I was baptized.
0: Right. Did. Yeah was was being uh, an adolescent or a, a young man having grown up in the Brantford area was the, did you face any specific challenges or difficulties that maybe other people mm-hmm. like myself would not have faced
3: it was uh it wasn't as as uh like it wasn't a situation of uh uh being bullied mm-hmm. and I think it was because, you know, that was around the time, uh, actually when, when programs were starting to come into the schools, uh, about more awareness and, you know, more respect for differences.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: So there wasn't, there wasn't, uh, that much trouble.
0: Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now I know that you, you went on to university, you have a, a, a BA in English, you have a master's in native studies. Um, was that something you always wanted to do or did it, did it, uh, was it a bit of a journey to get you there?
3: Yeah, that was, that was a journey. I mean, after, uh, after my adolescent years and during them was when I, when I was, uh, um i would say reunited with my culture
2: mm-hmm. and
3: that was through uh another member of my family uh one of my uncles uh took a great interest in uh in returning to his culture and you know that uh i was pretty close to him so that influenced me to uh, to also seek out, uh, seek out my culture and, and more or less, uh, return to, to, uh, traditional native ways,
1: mm-hmm.
3: uh, which then led, uh, later in life to my interest in education. And, you know, that's when I pursued, uh, uh, college and university, but it was, mm-hmm. you know, it was later. I was in my, uh, late twenties when I went to college.
0: Right. Did, um, I'm curious to, to, to to know what that experience was for you to, to sort of relearn or reconnect with your culture.
3: Yeah, that was, uh, that was, that was, uh, very, very invigorating, very, um, you know, it made, and it was, it was, uh, I would say it was a movement, uh, pretty much going on across the country. Uh, mm-hmm. so that would have been like the late 60s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so it was, uh, it was very, uh, very invigorating. And, you know, it made me proud and, and, you know, very, uh, very glad to see that there had been people uh who maintained uh our ways mm-hmm. you know our language our ceremonies uh because really you know that side of uh activity my grandmother was not involved with
0: no you know
3: she was involved with the the legal aspects
0: mm-hmm. uh
3: but not so much the uh ceremonial but had so you so it was uh it was very heartwarming to see that you know that our our people had had actually uh kept kept our culture.
0: Mm-hmm. Did you did you feel at the time that you were missing something or that something was missing, but you didn't know what it was?
3: I don't know that I really felt that, but um you know i I was just very glad that that things turned out the way they did. Uh, because later, later in life, uh, my family, uh, including my father, uh, we had a meeting with the United Church and, you know, at, at that meeting, my father, uh, kind of broke down and, and said, you know, that he grew up, uh, not realizing any, any of his native culture, and so you know I was just very thankful that you know I was able to get the uh, the education and understanding uh, of our people that uh, you know that he never was exposed to
0: mm-hmm. you, you because
3: may- you know because really the emphasis at that time you know was really to try and you know, try and extinguish, you know, those aspects of native life. So, you know, he was heavily, you know, influenced by that and and you know, really, you know, didn't even uh didn't even have an inkling, you know, of uh of native culture, you know, kind of till you know, till I uh I was expressing the interest and and then he got involved, and, and I think he realized, you know, that he had missed, you know, missed a big part of uh, part of his culture, all, most of his life.
0: Hmm. Um, you you said that you're a member of the Cayuga Nation. Can you tell our listeners who maybe have never heard about that particular nation a little bit about who <laughs> who they are?
3: Yeah, the uh, Cayuga are. Uh, are part of what's called the uh, Six Nations Confederacy, and that being the Mohawk, Oneida, Onondaga, Cuga, Seneca, and Tuscarora. And originally our homeland was near uh, Ithaca, New York, or well, where Cornell University is, Cayuga uh, Lake. That's our, our original territory. And when we lost that, we settled with uh, uh, mostly the Mohawk people uh, in the Brantford area through what's uh, called the Haldeman Tract, which Mm -hmm. was uh, an area of land uh, granted to us six miles on each side of the Grand River. And so sometimes, you know, if you hear of the land disputes, uh happening around caledonia or or places you know it's because they're within that boundary of the six miles on either side of the grand river and that was uh uh granted to us in a way by we had sided with the queen you know during the revolutions so you know it's uh I would say the majority of Cuga people, uh, live in Canada. Uh, there's a, a big push to retain our language. Mm-hmm. I think right now there may only be, oh, maybe 40 fluent speakers left. Wow. So, you know, there's, there's a big push, uh, for that. We have immersion schools, uh, and, you know, along with the, uh, language the culture is is woven into that so Mm
2: -hmm.
3: you know this is uh you know this is a big push right now is to is to retain our languages
0: right um you've been involved in so many initiatives with you know indigenous rights or native arts you mentioned the natives men's residents in toronto um but you're also the President uh, of the Board of Directors of the Fort Erie Native Friendship Center, and one of the projects there that I found very interesting is called actually the Friendship Project. and I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that and why you think that something like that is so important. Uh,
3: yeah it's you know one of the uh, one of the experiences I learned uh, along my life's journey is that. I was also involved with uh, a program called Leadership. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was called Leadership Buffalo. And that brought together diverse people from the community, you know, medical doctors, business leaders, uh, philanthropists. And, you know, it, it, it made me realize that once you got to know people you know one on one on a more personal level, uh, it opened up lines of communication, and so that's what this you know project is is uh, is an attempt to establish friendships and you know have uh, have lines of communication open so that uh, so that when need be, you know we can we can work together on on uh, a lot of the issues that are affecting us
0: if if i asked you if i asked you what is the one i know this is an impossible question to answer but what is the one thing that would would help canadians and indigenous people get onto that path of healing would you say that it is something as simple as becoming friends
3: uh well that's a part of it yeah i mean that is a part of it you know to uh you know because a lot of times you don't get to sit down with uh you know the head of a corporation or right you know the you know the uh head of a hospital or something you know and and you know once you once you do get to sit at the same table you know you you realize that there uh there may not be as many differences as people think yeah you know because we're all you know, we're all trying to, uh, strive and, you know, and get what's, uh, get what's good for our families and, and work in those areas.
0: Mm -hmm. If you were to say one thing to Canadians that, that you think that they should know about indigenous people, what would it be?
3: Well, it's important not to, um, not to generalize, you know, so, you know, I would say, you know, I'm talking as a Cougar person, uh, you know, but, you know, with the customs and traditions that I have, but those are very different than, you know, the customs and traditions of a Cree person. So, you know, I think the, uh, you know, one of the main things is to is to not generalize, Mm -hmm. you know, to realize that, you know, we, we all have different uh, customs, ceremonies. And so, you know, that's, uh, that's one of the main, one of the main things to, to realize.
0: Yeah. I think that that's something that the world is lacking in general right now people coming together without judgment to listen to each other. Um, There's a lot of, Obviously, talk right now about reconciliation with the Catholic Church specifically. The Pope might be coming to Canada. Uh, What, so, I have a few questions. What would you, what do you think Catholics, Canadian Catholics, need to know about how to move towards reconciliation?
3: Well, I think they have to have a better understanding of the residential schools, you know, and the lasting impact. Mm -hmm. Uh, that that can have on families uh you know because you know some people can say well you know that happened to your grandmother you know it didn't happen to you but what they don't realize is that you know what happened to my grandmother was you know was then or what didn't happen with her you know lack of love uh was passed on to her children and then her children to me um you know so you know it's uh it's to realize that uh that there's uh intergenerational you know Mm -hmm. trauma Mm -hmm. and you know that that's going to take a long time to uh a long time to heal and you know also to think of ways uh that they might be able to support that healing right and you know of course that would be different for each community but you know to be able to uh you know listen and you know start working towards uh you know towards that uh reconciliation
0: Mm -hmm. do you think the pope should come to Canada and apologize?
3: I think so, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, further, you know, to look at ways of, uh, ways of compensation and, you know, ways to uh, support, you know, Native communities in their, you know, struggles to uh, retain their cultures and you know languages and uh, traditional knowledge uh, because this is a value that that is good for the world mm-hmm. um, you know it's uh, you know it's really uh, you know now that now that we realize you know the value of our of our culture you know we're going to strive and work as hard as we can to retain it Mm -hmm. um you know but it would be helpful to uh you know to have allies
0: yes yes And, and and you're right the the gifts that you that the indigenous people bring. I mean, everyone has gifts, but those are gifts for the whole world, not just for the indigenous people and not just for Canadians. Alan, uh, it's been a great pleasure talking with you and maybe we can meet in person one day soon. Um, Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing a little bit of of who you are and what you do and, and your knowledge with us today.
3: Okay, you're welcome. Thank you.
0: Alan Jameson made me realize that there's a whole generation of indigenous people who grew up not considering that the fact that they were indigenous was important. It's only been in recent generations that they have begun to recover pride in their culture and their languages. I do hope that soon there will be more than just 40 fluent Cayuga speakers. Alan is also right in saying that reconciliation begins with friendship. Once we get to sit at the same table, we realize that there may not be as many differences as we think. Once we get to know each other and become friends, the path towards reconciliation is not that hard. To learn more about all Indigenous issues, especially as they intersect with the Catholic Church, you can visit our website at healing-reconciliation-journey. To listen to all our Salt and Light Hour programs and especially to other Indigenous Voices episodes, visit us at slmedia.org slash podcast. I'm Deacon Pedro. Thank you for listening to this special Indigenous Voices edition of the Salt and Light Hour.